Good morning. Um, my name is Kenny Cluett. For those I haven't had the privilege of meeting personally, I'm a pastor on staff at Christ Community. Um, I work mainly with what we call extension ministries or global and local outreach. Um, and it really is a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, I also happen to be from this country called Spain. And my, my wife is here with me. And also my sister has moved from Spain to Kansas City just to be with you all. Um, no, she's actually doing some student teaching here. So it's fun. She's actually living in Lenexa working here in Shawnee, so it's fun to be at church with my sister again, who I used to live thousands of miles away from. Um, so that's kind of cool. Totally irrelevant to the sermon, but I just thought you guys would be interested. Um, so over, over the past uh, few weeks, if you're new here, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at, at prayer. That's kind of been our focus, and, and what we've been doing is going through the Psalms, or certain Psalms, that's kind of the prayer book of the Bible, to figure out what, 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 is, what is Christian prayer like? What does biblical prayer look like? Um, and just as a re- reminder, refresher, we started out in Psalm 1 and 2, um, and, and we kind of got into the importance of being attentive in our prayer life, being attentive to what God is doing. Secondly, we looked at Psalm 3, um, kind of about the need to be vulnerable in our prayer, to be, come before God with, with what we really are feeling and needing. Um, then Psalms 4 and 5 kind of led us through the pattern of prayer, um, the habits of prayer, remember that, the morning and evening prayer. We got to Psalm 32, and we talked about the element of confession and prayer. And finally, last week, we did Psalms 42 and 43, looking at lament. What does is, what is biblical lament look like? And so this week, um, what we're going to do today is look at another element in prayer, um, and that's the element of praise in prayer. What does praise look like? What is biblical praise and praise in prayer? And if you're anything like me, um, or if you've been exposed to Christianity for a while, you know that, first of all, you know that um, we're called to praise, right? As Christians, we're called to praise God supremely above anything else. You also know that's really hard for some reason, right? Maybe I'm the only person, but I, I think a lot of us struggle with this thing of praising God, finding reasons um, to praise God. And we know it's important, right? Because we know what we love the most, we praise the most, and what we praise the most shapes us and transforms us. And we want that to be God you know, the maker of the universe, the most beautiful being, the, the person who loves us the most, but it's, it's hard sometimes. And I think we often get stuck in the very beginning of this psalm. Remember what it says? Just If, if you do have a Bible, you can open it to Psalm 104 now. Um, verse 1, look what it says. It's like the psalmist is talking to himself. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And I know as Christians we do that sometimes. We say, okay, time to praise God. And then he says, oh Lord my God, you're very great. And for most of us, I think that's where our prayer ends, right? We're like, you're great. Like, what do you say after that, right? What, it's, it's hard. It's hard to find reasons to pray, to pray sometimes. And this is a problem for Christians because, you know, we're, we're supposed to love God and we know he's great, but it's hard to find that connection. Um, I remember as a kid uh, or, as, or as a young man probably in, in church kind of thinking I heard and maybe even hearing this idea of, well, if you want to praise God, just say it. Just say it. I love God. I love God. And eventually you will. <laughs> kind of like a positive thinking, right, that goes around today. Just say that you want something and that it's real and then it'll happen. And, of course, I tried that. I tried just to repeat to myself, I love God. I love God. I love God to see if I actually loved, ended up loving him. And it, that doesn't really work. <laughs> a lot of my friends that have left church realize that that doesn't really work either. Maybe you're there today. Um, maybe you're here, you, you, you believe in God, you want to praise him, you want to love him, but it's hard. And it's hard to find those reasons, and you start wondering if 
Is it me? Is it God? What's, what's the issue? Maybe, maybe you don't even believe in God. You're like, well, that's the main reason I don't praise him. Why, why, why isn't it easier? Why aren't we naturally connected to this God that's supposed to be so great? Um, so this morning, with that very positive note to begin this, I want to suggest something. I think one of the reasons that we have such a hard time praising is because we aren't paying attention. We aren't paying attention not just um, to ourselves, but we're not paying attention to what God's doing and what's around us. Um, recently, or a, couple, a few years ago, a writer in the New York Times kind of coined this phrase, and he says, this is, this is our modernity has led us to lead in this. He says, we live in a state of continual or continuous partial attention. Continuous partial attention. And here's how he defines it. He says, continuous partial attention is when you're on the internet or cell phone or Blackberry, so that dates this, um, your iPhone, while also watching TV, typing on your computer, and answering a question from your kid. That is, you're multitasking your way through the day, continuously devoting only partial attention to each act or person you encounter. It is the malady of modernity. This is his words. We have gone from the Iron Age to the Industrial Age to the Information Age to the Age of Interruption. Now, I'm not dissing technology with this. That's not the point. Um, but what Friedman, this author, is saying, and what I, I think I'm suggesting is that we have a tendency as humans to be distracted, to distract ourselves, to get involved in many different things, not thinking. What modernity has done, what technology has done, is given us a lot of new things to be distracted with. But I don't think it's a problem just in modernity. It's something within us. We have a tendency to be distracted. And in this psalm today, Psalm 104, as, as the author models a posture of prayer, what he's modeling is the opposite of that attitude, the opposite of continual partial attention. What he's modeling is a posture of attentiveness to the master planner, of attentiveness to God. And out of that, praise flows. Attentiveness to God's world, to God's words, and to God's presence. And out of that, is where praise flows. So this morning, I'd like to get into this psalm together. Um, I'd like to actually read it in a second and kind of look at these three places where the psalmist is saying, pay attention here, pay attention here, pay attention there, and praise will flow out of that. It's kind of a, a step for us to take as Christians to continue to seek authentic praise. Um, so we're going to read Psalm 104. It's long. Okay, so our first exercise in attentiveness is to listen. <laughs> for a long time. But here's what I want us to do. And this may be hard for some of you. It may feel uncomfortable. But if, if you are comfortable, you can follow along with the text or you can just close your eyes and listen. I'll try to read very clearly. But what I want you to do is engage your imagination in this psalm to really let, let your mind see and feel the images, the sensations, the, the imagery that the psalmist is, is giving to us and feel what the psalmist is getting at. Be attentive to what he's looking at. And the first thing we'll look at out of that is how he's saying, be attentive to God's world and praise him for that. Be attentive to God's world. And notice how he describes that and, and describes God's work in this world. So I'll go ahead and read it. And let's just be attentive and listen. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. 
You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not ever again cover the earth. You made springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast in the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden his heart, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You made darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. And there go the ships and Leviathan, this massive beast, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it up to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled, filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Well, the first thing the psalmist is doing is he's modeling this attentiveness to God's world. Did you notice that? He's attentive to what God's doing around. It reminds me a lot of a um, kind of like a, a native forest guide. Have you ever been on these forest? When taking you through the jungle, and actually the author of the article I read earlier describes a guide that led him through the forest ones. Let me, let me just read this, and it reminds me, it's, it's a lot like what the psalmist is doing. Here's what he says. He says, what struck me about our Peruvian rainforest guide, Gilbert, I'm pretty sure the guy's name wasn't actually Gilbert. It's probably like Gilberto or something. But anyway, what struck me about our Peruvian rainforest guide, Gilbert, though, was that he carried no devices and did not suffer from continuous partial attention. Just the opposite. He heard every chirp, whistle, howl, or crackle in the rainforest and would stop us in our tracks and immediately identify what bird, insect, or animal it was. He also had incredible vision and never missed a spider's web or a butterfly or a toucan or a column of marching termites. He was totally disconnected from the web, but totally in touch with the incredible web of life around him. See, this is a lot like... Um, what, what, what a lot of our Native American theologians are actually teaching us recently is nature around us actually does display what God's doing. And if you just pay attention and listen, it will lead us to prayer. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's listening. He's seeing. 
And then he engages his imagination and disciplines it to organize what he's seen under God. That's what poetry is at the end of the day. It's disciplined imagination. And as he does, he sees a God that is working well. He sees not, not just a God that's the jack of all trades. He's the master of all trades. Did you notice the language about vocation in this psalm? God is, is like the master of all vocations, of all professions. Let me give you a few examples. In verse 2, we see God as, as this master artist covered with light. And then he's the architect and engineer of the universe, stretching out the heavens, laying the beams of the world and the waters. He's the constructor that puts the earth on his foundations in verse 9. He's a CEO and communication managers in verses 3 and 4. Do you notice that? It says, he sends out his messages not with Twitter, but on the wind. I mean, that's pretty cool. I don't know anyone else that can do that. And then it says his ministers, you know, he's this massive CEO whose ministers are fire. Um, not a lot of people get to manage fire. Um, he's the master landscape architect. Do you see that? And, and gardener of all the world, designing water conducts and feeding troughs and dwelling places and playgrounds. For, for the goats, he builds playgrounds that are called mountains. Um, he, he, he builds these plants for all the animals to enjoy. He's the zookeeper too, except he doesn't have to coerce animals with cages and whips. He gives them freedom and places to roam. He carefully conducts the water he has. Um, he's the astronomer as well. He's a marine biologist that creates, creates the biggest conservancy project we've ever seen. It's called the ocean. Even higher, he controls the seasons. He cares for these, even these little creatures called humans, he cares for them and gives them the night so that they have to rest. He gives them food. It says he even gives them wine and oil so that they can enjoy life. He's a master entertainer as well. This is our God. Even, even if you don't believe in God, when you think of this, isn't it awesome to see all the things that go on and how they somehow hold together in this world? See, God even, even creates a playground in the ocean for this Leviathan. You know, in, the, in, in ancient culture, Leviathan was this, this beast that everyone feared. And maybe it was a whale or a shark or a crocodile. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that everyone feared. And the author says, God creates the ocean, you know, as kind of a plaything for his little pet, the Leviathan. That's the God we're talking about here. As we look at the world, as the psalmist looks at the world, he's inspired to praise this God. So if you want to worship God, be attentive to this world and praise him for it. That's what he's saying. Um, recently, I began following on, on my Instagram, Instagram's little program on your phone, um, where you see pictures. People just put pictures up. And I started following National Geographic, and they haven't paid me to say this. Um, but it's been interesting because as I follow that, I'll sometimes get stuck on these pictures of nature and of the beings that God created, and it naturally leads me to praise. I'm not that spiritual. I know I'm up here and pretending I am. I'm not. I don't normally just start praying or praising, but sometimes when you look, when you're attentive to God's creation, it leads you to praise. And that's the first thing the psalm is showing us. So th this morning here, let me challenge you with something. Maybe it's not nature for you, or it's not pure nature, although I, I want to encourage you to look at nature as well. Look at God's works it's pure works as they come at us. But what, what, what the psalmist is doing as he's looking at nature, as he's enjoying the pleasure of things, he's turning that into praise. So this week, let me encourage you, turn your pleasures into praise. End your pleasures with praise. The good things that God gives you, this world isn't all good, but the good things that God gives you, turn them back with praise. Give them back to him with praise. Discipline your imagination. Discipline your way of enjoying things to turn these things back to God in praise. That's the first thing our psalmist is doing. And look, for some of you, um, you may not even believe in God. And I, know, and I know many people who don't. 
But I'd even recommend that exercise for those that don't. Many of my atheist friends, when they, when they are really attentive to nature, to the creation, they start finding something to worship because it's very hard to imagine that there's not something that's guiding all this. And I would say keep being attentive. Keep being attentive to what God has done and he'll reveal it. But for Christians, we even go a step further and we say, look, it's not just being attentive to God's world. That's very important. But we also have a plausible story guide that guides our praise, a prism or a lens that guides our praise, and that's called God's word. So God's given us his world to praise from, to being attentive to God's world and praise him for it. But then be attentive to God's words and praise him with it. That's the second attentive thing that our author is asking us to do. Be attentive to God's words and praise him with them. And you see that the reason we know that this psalm is encouraging us to do that is because this psalm is based very strictly on the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Did you hear some of the language that we have in Genesis 1 and 2? Let me just give you a couple examples, but I'd encourage you to go home. And if you have a couple Bibles or pull them up on the computer, put Genesis 1 right next to this psalm and start tracing the similarities. Like, for example, remember Genesis 1, we have the story of God creating the world in seven days. Remember this? And the first day, for example, we see God separates light from darkness. And in this psalm, as we look at the beginning, we see, you know, God, you're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like the tent. You see that imagery? It's the same kind of imagery. Um, you go into day two, and in Genesis and day two, God separates water and air. And notice how that starts happening in the psalm. Verses three and four, he says, he lays the beams of his chambers on the water. There's the water. He's keeping it down. And then he makes the cloud his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. He ministers a flaming fire. God's putting the elements in their place. Day three in Genesis, water and land are separated and vegetation starts growing. Remember this? God starts building this vegetation and giving it, um, preparing it for the creatures. And we see that in verses 10 and 18 in this psalm. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. The trees, then we go to verse 16, it says, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted, and the creatures start coming. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. And it goes on and on through the other days. But here's my point with this. This entire psalm is based in scripture, and it flows out of that. So as the writer is looking at God's world, he's, also, he's looking outward. He's also looking upward to God's words. And he's making that connection. He's using his imagination not to invent God into the world, but to make the connection between the two things that he knows is true, between God's world and God's words. And he's praising him with God's words. Um, there, there's an author in the English language, American author, Annie Dillard, that some of you might be familiar with. She wrote um, A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And I was reading another author comment on her, and here's what he said about her. And it, it just struck me as something very similar to the psalmist. He says, she has assimilated scripture so thoroughly, she's so saturated with its cadences and images, that it is simply at hand, unbidden, as context and metaphor for whatever she happens to be writing about. She does not, though, use scripture to prove or document. It is not a truth she used, but once she lives, her knowledge of scripture is stored in her right brain the creative part, rather than her left. Nourishment for the praying imagination rather than fuel for apologetic argument. Can you imagine living like that? With your praise so saturated with the cadences and images of scripture that you start speaking in biblical allusions. Can you imagine what that does to your reading, 
to your writing, to your working, to your conversations, where instead of me and I at the center, Scripture kind of expands your horizon to move beyond yourself and see the plethora of ways in which God is working. How do we do that? We let Scripture guide our praise. So let me encourage you. Um, use Scripture to guide your praise. Let Scripture guide you in your praise and let the words of Scripture make you go deeper and wider. You know what Scripture does? It, it helps us go beyond ourselves and our little petty praise things that are important. But notice the psalmist isn't saying, thank you because you gave me this little pot of land and a good job. No, he's saying, wow, I look at your creation. I look at what you've done and I can thank you for everything, for this whole world, what you're doing for so many other people. And he's not even praising just for people. He's even praising for what God has given to the animals. It's expanding his horizon. So can him see a God that's praiseworthy. Let God's words guide your praise. And what it does for the author at the end, did you notice at the beginning the author says, bless the Lord, oh my soul. It's like he's trying to pull out this blessing from his soul. But as he moves on, notice what he says in verse 33. He says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. In other words, when his praise is saturated in scripture, his horizon of praise expands. He starts saying, it's not just bless the soul now, I'm gonna, or bless the Lord my soul now, I'm gonna praise God forever. He starts seeing himself in this eternal dance that God began with the Trinity and the praise to him together. He starts longing to continually praise. Don't you want that? Here's the thing, as we engage in God's world and in his word, we also become attentive to his presence in the world. And this is the third thing the author is telling us to be attentive to. He says, be attentive to God's real presence and praise him in it. This may be a shocker to some people, but Christian praise isn't just about a mental exercise to feel better. Sometimes we get that impression, especially, I mean, maybe you have real healthy theology, but I hear this a lot. I just praise because it makes me feel better. That's not what Christian praise is about. You see, God, God isn't just this massive being, the kind of separate keeping the universe working. He is that. He is wholly other, wholly different from us, distant, unique, special, a unique being that we're nothing like. But he's also a God that relates to us, who's up close and personal, who cares about our needs and gives us things that we don't deserve. You see, as, as the psalmist works through this at the end, this praise that's so massive and big becomes personal and close to him. Look at this in verses 34 and 35. He says, may my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And then he applies this to his circumstances. Look, he says, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Here's what he's saying. God, hear my words and get rid of evil. Make the world as it should be and be with me. See, because what praise has done for the author, it's readjusted his perspective. It's helped him understand how the world actually works, what it's actually designed to do. And it gives him not just a desire for God to be control, in control. He starts realizing that God actually is in control. That God actually is bringing his kingdom and making his will done. That God actually does care about him. It almost, it almost echoes Jesus' words, right? When he says, look at the birds in the field. If I care for them, how much more will I care for you? Look, here's the thing. The statement that the author is making is huge, actually. 
So if you think about it, it's very polemical. Because when we look around the world, what we often see is evil, bad things. And we see that God doesn't seem to be in control. But when we enter into praise, we see God in control. Suddenly we start saying things that are subversive, like God actually is in control. And this psalm in its time was actually a super polemical psalm. And what I mean by polemical is it's challenging the things that people consider to be real. So, for example, when this psalm was written in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, there were a number of statements um, or a number of beliefs that people had that this psalm contradicted. For example, most people believed um, that the Babylonian deity Marduk, so th th there's these different gods that were competing for stuff. The Babylonian deity Marduk um, was said to have split his enemy Tiamat. These are important names to remember. No, they're not. But um, Tiamat means the water of the chaos. So this god, everyone believed Marduk had, had taken the water of chaos and divided it. So they worship this God for it. And the authors say, no, actually our God did that. And he actually created it all from scratch. It wasn't some enemy that he built. He actually took nothing and made it into matter. Marduk has nothing on Yahweh. That's one thing that's, or another example, right? The, the Canaanite Baal, or Baal, as we, we read a lot about that in the Old Testament. Um, this is a God who is said to have once ridden on clouds. Um, and, and, and he built this amazing um, palace out of the cedars of Lebanon. And the author says, well, maybe he did that, but Yahweh, the clouds are his chariots. And he actually put his foundations on the waters of the earth. Our God reigns, and Baal is a cheap imposer. That's what this psalm is saying. It's subversive. You even wonder if it was had, you had to read it in whispers, because it's so powerful what it's saying. Because you see, what it's doing is, as the author is praising, he starts realizing that God's presence and power is real here and now. And all other deities, all other things we try to build up, all other idols are a joke that will bring terrible disappointment if we keep worshiping them. I mean, think about it for us today. We have all these deities. Maybe we don't call them Marduk or Baal, but we give people extra merits when they belong to God. We praise our personal and cultural achievements, don't we? We praise sex for the pleasure we get from it. We praise productivity for the sense of satisfaction it gives. But these aren't real gods. Pleasure is a gift from the ultimate God. Productivity is something that God created and defined. It has nothing to do with our culture's limited and isolation, iso, I can't even say this, iso, isolated definition, I'm sorry. Um, our, our, our definition of productivity is often a checklist, but look at how God's productive here. It's keeping the entire universe functioning. When was the last time you were that productive? Hmm? Think of it. And the other thing praise does, though, it doesn't, it confronts these gods, but it also confronts evil. You see, a lot of times we think, well, praise is about just seeing all the good things, right? And that's a lie. That's not what praise is about. Praise isn't optimistic. It's not saying, well, let's just look at the good things and forget the bad things and it'll be better. No, praise says, God has created all this so I can look evil in its face and say, God, get rid of this evil. Get rid of the evil in the world. Get rid of the evil in my heart. God, bring your kingdom. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how our praise ends. It doesn't end in some optimistic fairy dust land. So for us today, let me encourage you, let your requests begin with praise. Before you ask God for something, praise him. Remind yourself of who God is. Look around, look out the window, and, and remind yourself of what God is doing in this world before you ask him for your petitions, and then bring your petitions to him. If this is new for you, let me just suggest a formula to begin with, not your end formula. Start your prayers with God because you are, and name what God is. And then ask him, say, God, because you're a provider, we ask that you would provide for us. 
or for, or for the refugees that are, that are scattered across the world. God, because you're a provider and you care about justice, bring justice to that situation. God, because you're compassionate, remove my sin from me. Help me see the truth. God, because you're all wise, help us to understand you. Notice the difference there. We're affirming what God is, and it helps us to ask rightly. Look, I get that this is hard for some of us, though. You may be sitting there saying, well, that sounds great. I know God's greater than Marduk or whoever that was or Baal. But today it's hard. It's hard to see God working. It's hard to see his traces in the universe. I don't know how to praise him. Here's my advice. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Because God, you see, he wasn't, he's not just seen indirectly in nature. God came in a clear, blunt, and unmistakable way in the person of Jesus. He embodied the entire deity, God himself, and showed mastery over all professions from carpentry to telling the wind to calm down. He was the absolute and powerful God, and he was God, and he is God, up close and personal. And he came to show us how close God was, right? How his presence actually mattered, how he's ridding us of sin, the world of evil, and how he's bringing his kingdom. Because when Jesus came and became human, he affirmed creation. That's the first thing he did by becoming human. He said, this is good. My world is still good. By dying, by letting himself be killed by us, he negated our perfectness and pointed out our sin and said, this is evil. And by being raised from the dead again, he affirmed a better creation. He says, I'm bringing something better, something greater. I'm recreating this world. And because he's raised... If Christ indeed did raise from the dead, because he's raised from the dead, we can praise confidently and trust confidently that he will bring his kingdom. We can pray and trust that our petitions will get to him. And we can praise him without feeling like we're making something up because we aren't. Jesus is living proof that God's love is worth depending on and shaping our lives. And look, as we praise God, as we look to Christ, tell you it'll change our lives, right? We'll gain a new humility knowing our place in God's world. We develop a deeper passion for God beyond our small petitions. We, we become more compassionate and tender for humans and for God's world. We also gain a new confidence, though, as we praise God. We can now rest from our work. We don't have to feel like we have to create the springs and the mountains for the goats, right? Someone already did that. We're no longer overwhelmed with the brokenness and evil in this world because we know that one is coming and one is here that has power over everything. And we become more generous in our praise and enjoyment of others and of things. Don't you want that? Isn't that something you desire to have that life of praise? Here's my encouragement. Be attentive to God's world. Be attentive to God's words and be attentive to God's presence. Enter into that and praise there. His love will guide us. It will shape us. And we'll honestly be able to join the psalmist at the end when he says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord.